For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, exploring the legal and political legacy of Arizona icon Ernest W. McFarland. The story of a Tucson couple whose lives were positively changed by unexpected visitors in their backyard. How musical literacy can help raise money for literacy with books. And visit Martins on 4th Avenue for a taste of fresh, vegan Mexican food. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In the introduction to Gary Stewart's new book, Call Him Mac, Michael Daly Hawkins jokes that Ernest McFarland could be seen as a man who literally couldn't keep a job. From small-town lawyer in Florence, to county prosecutor, to state trial judge, U.S. Senator, Arizona Governor, and State Supreme Court Justice. Between 1921 and 1970, McFarland was one of the most important legal and legislative figures in Arizona's relatively brief state history. He also lived a life marked by personal tragedy, losing three children and his first wife by the age of 36. He left behind a legacy he was proud of, including helping to initiate the GI Bill for returning veterans from World War II and writing an important legal decision about Miranda rights in Arizona. Gary Stewart had his work cut out for him in crafting a biography of McFarland, as you'll hear in this interview. I had a real idea about uh, Ernest McFarland because he was on the Supreme Court when I graduated from the University of Arizona Law School and took the bar. And he swore us all in as members of the bar in the Arizona Supreme Court chambers in Phoenix. And after swearing us in, he came down off the bench, took his robe off, and shook hands with everybody in the room. Uh, So that was a great start. I've not seen any other justice of the Supreme Court do anything like that. Much is made of McFarland's humility and his ability to build bonds with people regardless of their background. What would you say, though, is a key element in his upbringing or maybe just in his personality that helped make Ernest McFarland such a dedicated public servant? I read a lot about that, about how did he get to where he got. And what is it about a rural, small county judge in a very small town? What is it about that environment that might position him well for the enormous political accomplishments from age 45, that's when he went to the Senate, until 70, that's when he retired from public life. What was it down there in in Florence? Ultimately, the book focuses, as you know, on the Arizona years, those early Arizona years, 1919 to 1940, because that's what so surprised everybody on the East Coast. I mean, nobody in Washington had ever heard of him before. And he shows up as the elected member of the United States Senate in January of 1941. And he beat uh, an Arizona resident who was the first senator from the state. Henry Fountain Asterisk was called the Lion of the Senate 
in those years, in all through the 30s. Nobody thought he could lose, but Mac beat him in 1940 in the primary. In the book, you make the very clear point that Senator Ashurst didn't even bother to visit Arizona during the primary process. So we can see what might have been a fundamental flaw in his campaigning in 1940. But what do you think was the strength of the way Ernest McFarland campaigned in 1940? Well, I, I had no idea uh, what what his strength was, how he accomplished this. But I certainly uh, found it. It was all there waiting to be found in the archives at the state capitol here in Phoenix. Uh, the, the documentation of that election is gigantic. My guess is 75% of his campaign was done by letters sent through the United States Postal Service. He dictated all of those letters to his secretary. She typed them, he proofread them, he signed them, and he licked many of the postage stamps on the envelopes. It was a very personal kind of campaign, but one person, his secretary, typed every single letter, and there were tens of thousands of letters. Many of them, hundreds and hundreds of them, were responded to by the people they went to. And Mac responded to their response. Uh, All through the primary campaign, started in June, ended in September of 1940, he drove his car to hundreds of barn dances and rodeos and small meetings and large meetings of all kind. They didn't really have rallies then. That wasn't part of the political system. But there were rallies for other things. There were football games. There were basketball games. He went to barber shops and cafes and restaurants and public parks. Uh, the amount of, of shoe leather, it's called shoe leather campaigning back then, uh, was, was tremendous. So his personal contact with voters was by the thousands. And he made, uh, obviously, a very good impression everywhere he went, that and the fact that the war was coming, because his 1940 campaign was built around the defense posture of the United States government, built his whole campaign, on not in its entirety, but 90% of it on that issue. Are we prepared to go to war? Well, one more question for you, Gary, and that is, when you were working on this book, did it in any way give you a larger perspective or context on the history of the Republican Party and the fact that when McFarland was serving, that was really a party that had uh, room for internal debate and for different positions on on many issues that today seems to have been whittled down to some core values. Your thoughts? Well, you know, you've hit on the, I think, the most important thing about this book and about his story. He became majority leader in the Senate precisely because he was a Democrat with more friends on the Republican side of the aisle than on the Democratic side of the aisle. He had lots and lots and lots of close friends on both sides of the aisle, but probably more on the Republican side. He was widely trusted and widely respected by both sides of the aisle. And that's what made his term as majority leader so successful. 
his era was impossibly quaint. He stood for and ran on the platform to be within his caucus, decency, truth, and the rule of law. But he was also a huge advocate for the rule of nations. So I think, given what I know about him now, having read a great deal about him and written a little bit about him, I, I think he would refuse to run for any office in America today. Not his kind of politics. As I was researching and writing this book, I was also researching, watching television, watching the media, watching what's happening in our nation's capital, and worrying for the first time in my adult life about democracy. Will we survive this? Still don't know. Gary Stewart is the author of Call Him Mac, a new book from the University of Arizona Press. Stewart will be in attendance at an evening celebrating Ernest McFarland, Tuesday, January 29th, from 6 to 8 p.m., on campus at the UA Library's Special Collections. Seating is limited, but there's a link to RSVP on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Starting a new chapter of life in a different house and neighborhood can be a challenge, but times of transition bring opportunities to make amazing discoveries. Next, Tony Paniagua has the story of a Tucson teacher whose life was transformed once she began to get to know her new neighbors. While they were living in a house that was built in the 1950s, Mary Lewis and her husband discovered the home would need extensive improvements for the long term, so they decided to find a newer place with more space as an added bonus. Actually, it was Mary's idea to explore other options. I went to the two favorite streets that I like, and I found this house, and we figured out how we could get it. They moved from Midtown Tucson to the Tucson foothills in 1997. It wasn't until a few years later that Mary started noticing her neighbors and their peculiar habits. Interesting, she thought. He sleeps a lot, and, and when he wakes up, he attacks his mother. And she is very, very good with that because it's a way for him to learn how to fight. Not only that, but the family's dining habits are also fascinating. The food is fresh and local, always has been, but there's no such thing as table manners. Most recently, they brought rabbits in the yard, and they, they never eat the cottontail. <laughs> and sometimes it's not too nice. Mary's neighbors on her two-acre property have been different bobcat families. They live among Palo Verde and mesquite trees and other native vegetation. It's been a joy. I love the wildlife and the birds and the javelina. There were 14 javelina here yesterday. The adaptable bobcat is the most common wildcat in North America. It lives from southern Canada to central Mexico in various habitats that range from humid swamps in Florida to dry deserts in Arizona. In the suburban Tucson area, they are not uncommon, although Mary and her husband Lou weren't sure what to make of them during their initial encounters. Lou even wanted Mary to get into her car when she needed to check the mail at the end of the driveway. My husband was concerned about the bobcats being in the yard, so he wanted me to drive to get the mail, and I thought that was over the top. Along the way, the felines went from occasional sightings to frequent backyard explorers, not quite guests when it all began. The adults can easily get over Mary's five to six foot concrete block wall. 
The mothers use their mouths to carry the kittens until the babies get older and can also scale the wall. So I called Fish and Game, and they said it was okay, that the bobcat had been watching this yard for a long time, and she knew that she was safe here. She could feel that somehow. And so after that, Lou was comfortable, and I was joyful. <laughs> when the coast is clear, Mary provides water for the cats, only water, not food. And when they do enter her yard, she stays inside the house while she watches them and enjoys their antics. I do have an interesting family, and it's all the time. I, it's hard to get any work done. This summer, Mary is sharing her yard with a loving mother and one feisty kitten. However, a few years ago, a busy female bobcat was trying to keep up with a larger litter. I felt sorry for the first mother with three babies. She was exhausted. She was so thin, she was so exhausted, three babies. But one works. <laughs> Over the years, the cats became an integral part of the couple's life. Mary wrote a book with illustrations by Lou. We were married almost 35 years, and he had been in Nagasaki, so he had skin problems, and he couldn't really be outdoors. Um, when he was 84, he decided to paint, so I took some photos, and he painted from the photos. And I said, now you have to do 13 photos for a calendar of the bobcats, and he did. After he died, I couldn't put the calendar away, so I laid the pages out on the counter, and I wrote a children's story about the bobcats. One page says, the bobcats get ready for school. Pay attention, bobcats. And there's three on the fence, and one's looking the other way. After Baby Bobcat Goes to School, Mary teamed up with another author who wrote a second book. I give more books away than I sell, but my purpose was to share my husband with the world. And that was met. <laughs> the second book is for older children. It also uses Lou's illustrations. He died in 2014. It wasn't unexpected, 98. I thought I'd have five years, and I got 35. And so I'm very, very grateful about that. Yeah. Mary is a retired school teacher who likes to find educational and learning opportunities in her observations. In addition to the books, she also shares them on Facebook and YouTube videos. It's very entertaining, and I, I like to think that this is like a schoolyard. And it seems to me that she is actually educating that baby. Looking back, Mary Lewis says she wasn't expecting her life to be affected so much when she moved to her larger house two decades ago and came across the Bobcats. I'm really humbled and really pleased that they choose my yard. We have to realize that we encroached on their world. Yeah, I pay the taxes on it, but it's for the world, it's for the animals, and we just have to show appreciation and, and you know, love them from afar. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. Mary Lewis's backyard is also home to some adopted Sonoran Desert tortoises. She says the younger bobcats sometimes want to play with the reptiles, but eventually the cats lose interest because the tortoises just don't participate.
The nonprofit Literacy Connects was founded in 2011. In the last fiscal year, it helped change the lives of an estimated 55,000 Tucsonans of all ages by opening the door to reading in a positive and supportive environment. The ongoing need to fund their mission is getting a boost this weekend, courtesy of an idea that revolves around musical literacy. Next, I'll talk with Susan Fries from Literacy Connects and Harvey Wolf, who was a cellist with the Cleveland Symphony for 37 years. They're inviting the community to enjoy an evening of impromptu classical music for a good cause. We have monthly volunteer info sessions at Literacy Connects, and they are opportunities for people to come and that think they might be interested in being volunteers. And we have reading coaches and English language teachers and all different ways to volunteer. We do them twice a month. And Harvey's wife, Susie, had volunteered with us previously, and she was thinking about re-engaging with Literacy Connects. And so she was coming to a an info session and dragged Harvey along. I wasn't dragged, uh, actually. Uh, I also thought that I should seek out volunteering in this way, but uh, what I do is is music, and I volunteer that way. I was sitting there, it occurred to me that this is something that I could do, and I sought out Susan uh, and uh, broached the subject to her. So what's the idea? Tell us what the event will revolve around. People may not know this, but when there are uh, professional performances, people practice and rehearse and perform. There's also something else that musicians do. It's called reading. Musicians get together just for fun. They take out folios of music and they say, what do you want to play? And uh, they say, why don't we play Mozart quartets or why don't we play Haydn quartets? The readings are spontaneous. They're unrehearsed. Hopefully the musicians are experienced enough to be able to get through it without too many terrible things. Uh, Sometimes the music breaks down, somebody gets lost, so it's very informal and it's a lot of fun. You could call it a classical chamber music jam session. Tell me, who have you recruited? Uh, I'm, I'm very pleased to say that Tim Cantor, who's the violin teacher at the university, music department is playing, and his wife, Michelle Abraham, who was the associate concertmaster of the Tucson Symphony, and Ted Buckholtz, uh, who's the cello teacher at the university, and uh, Rob Chamberlain, who plays in the Tucson Symphony. Among those, there are some others, several others playing also. Myr- Myrna Ryan, who is retired from the Minnesota Symphony, an outstanding uh, violist, and uh, Joseph Russos Hammond, who was uh, also in the Tucson Symphony. I mean, they're all very experienced and good players, and they're all young enough, or, uh, almost all young enough to be my, the age of my grandchildren, which tickles me. Susan, would you please share with our listeners something about the community that Literacy Connects serves? People may think that we're just adult literacy, or they may think that we're just in schools, um, but really we serve folks from infants Uh, at Well Baby Checkups, uh, all the way to in their 80s. I think our oldest student is 83. So we're actually serving members of the community in different ways. So are you issuing an invitation to the public to uh, attend this event? What might people expect besides the musical portion that Harvey's presenting? Yeah, we would love to have uh, the public come. Um, It's going to be at Literacy Connects, and so it would be a wonderful opportunity for people to come and see where we are and see some of the other things that we're doing. We have a 
a refugee community garden next door, a Habitat for Humanity is building, nine houses on the lot adjacent to us. So there's lots of things happening in our neighborhood. We're asking that people bring a donation for Literacy Connects. We do encourage it. We will be having refreshments, cheese and wine. Uh, we'll have our courtyard open. Um, I think it'll just be a really, really lovely evening. Anything else that you would like to say? Oh, about? just one, one funny thing. I, I told a friend of mine about this event, and he said, well, they're very particular uh, about what they go to in music because they don't like to listen to anything uh, made after 1830. Uh, so uh, I reassured him we're probably not playing anything after 1830 uh, except for maybe Mendelssohn, who was dead around 1840 or so, if he'll give me that. But not to worry. <laughs> we're not playing Schoenberg. Our mission is connecting people of all ages to a world of opportunities through literacy and creative expression. And so this really fits in. We have a creative arts component, but we've not yet had music. Uh, and so I'm very, very excited and grateful to Harvey um, for this opportunity. My guests were Susan Fries, Community Engagement Director from Literacy Connects, and retired Cleveland Symphony cellist Harvey Wolf, who's been living in Tucson for about 15 years. The musical fundraising event is Saturday, January 26th from 5 to 8 p.m. at Literacy Connects headquarters, located at 200 East Yavapai Road. Martins has been a mainstay on 4th Avenue for nearly 18 years, offering healthy Mexican food and a luchador-themed restaurant. After years of relying on word of mouth for advertising, owner and chef Martin Fontes is adapting to changing times as part of an evolving Tucson restaurant scene. Fontes will take us on a tour of his kitchen next in a story produced by Andrew Brown. These are the Mayacoba beans that come from Wasabi Sinaloa. I just came back and brought 300 kilos of them. Most of my cousins there are planters and they grow these. I think it's a labor of love. I use it as like a form of meditation. It gives me a moment to think about what else I need to do. It's not like opening up a can. I take a lot of pride in these beans. They come from my family's farms. We're at Martins Comida Chingona at 555 North 4th Avenue. I'm going on my 18th year on May 9th is when I open. I'm making a tomatillo pozole. Vegetarian, it's gonna be amazing. I dreamt up this recipe on the way up from uh, Sinaloa on my trip for Christmas, and I'm gonna try it, see how it goes. I took care of my mother, and I got a job at the uh, oldest Mexican restaurant downtown, and I noticed that I never clock watched when I was at work, even though I spent 10 hours or 12 hours, and I really enjoyed it. Not only does it make me tired and physical, it's also very social, and I just like playing with food. As a child, it was always like the center of the household, the kitchen. I grew up in Mexicali, Baja California. When I graduated from my Catholic school, I went to Nogales High School. I lived with my grandmother at the time. I finished school and I came up to go to school here at the U of A. Gosh. Have a nice day. Thank Happy you. to you, sir. 
I'm not a very fancy chopper. When you're eating my rice, you're gonna get a little chunk of onion and go, ooh. So you can distinguish the flavors of each thing in each dish. Separately, we do the soup for the rice, and then we do the toasting of the rice. I'm gonna put the garlic in here and toast the garlic to give the oil flavor. And then we're gonna put the rice. You add it a little bit at a time, so it toasts nice and evenly. And we put them together. It's five minutes of cooking, boiling, and then turn off the heat, and 20 minutes of just sitting, and you got perfect rice. I was the youngest of all my, all my brothers, and my mother had progressed diabetes. I took all these Mexican recipes because she used to cook for us a lot, and I kind of tweaked them to the healthier side. So instead of adding more salt to the food, I would add more garlic and spices to make it taste better. And I would add nopalitos to her food. They have all kinds of benefits. It's a green vegetable, and it tends to control your blood sugar very well, which is really important even if, you're, if you don't suffer from diabetes. So when I came to open the restaurant, I decided not to have a deep fryer. I decided not to even have a freezer here. When the health department comes, they go, where's your frozen food? Where's your raw food? There is no such thing because when I need to make the chicken mole, as soon as I get the chicken, we cook it all into mole. These are the mayocoba beans. I just put a little bit of corn oil and a pinch of sea salt. This is the final bean. We greet you with a little bit of beans over your chip. I like to think I can feed everybody here whether you have some kind of dietary restriction or some kind of illness. Pretty much all our food, except for the meats and the cheese and the eggs, are vegan. It's easy to do. A lot of people have opened restaurants recently, and I do things a little differently that sometimes they may not understand why I don't have sour cream or deep-fried chimichangas, and they honestly don't think I'm Mexican, but it's really strange. I'm trying to make myself known again. I used to think word of mouth was really important, and it did work for me for 10, 15 years. But now, I'm really trying to work a little more and more of my media, my Instagram, my Facebook. People really look up things on the internet, and they believe what's on there, whether it's, it's true or not. You have to go after the money now. It's not walking in the door. I think food has a very important part in life is to balance your blood. It's supposed to make you feel better after you eat, not make you feel clumsy or heavy. It is designed to make you feel better, not make you feel worse. That visit to Martine's on 4th Avenue was produced by Andrew Brown. You can see the story you just heard on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.